Hello, my beautiful, precious, darling. Uh, what's another nice word? Um, 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 I can't think of one right now. So we're just going to cut right here. Beep. All right, let's get serious here. Hello, my beautiful angel babies. My name is Christina. I am your host. This is the IDFK podcast. Um, if you are new here, hello and welcome into the IDFK podcast. If you are a returning guest, I love you. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to me more than once. Um, this is a podcast. Yes, it is. It is all about shit that goes on in our 20s. I have not done a solo episode in quite some time. So, um, yeah, this is, <laughs> we're getting back to our basics here. I have some Justin's dark chocolate peanut butter cups next to me. They are amazing. I have a nice glass of water. We're really just getting in the groove of things. I did have a white claw before this. And prior to that, I did go for drinks with my friends. I don't want to hear judgment. Okay. I've been, rec- not recording. I've been researching cold cases for the past 48 hours and Let me tell you, it has been amazing. It has been so fun, but also not as fun as just listening to them on a podcast. It, I feel like that is just like the prime way to listen to cold cases. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so let me just switch over to my little my little document here of notes that is seven pages long at this point. Okay, so today we're just gonna jump into the we're just gonna jump into the noise like we always do, like we always do. Today we. And by we, I mean I am going to be introducing a new series on the podcast. Um, This is going to be called The Theory Series. It's all about Bay Area cold cases. And I'm going to do basically about one episode a month um, because like I have explained before, but I don't know, like if you're new, you don't know this. um, This podcast is all about shit that goes on in our 20s. It's also just kind of a podcast where I can talk about whatever the hell I want to, whenever the hell I want to. And I definitely want to do cold cases. It's And and just like true crime in general, it's something I've wanted to do from the beginning of creating this podcast. Um, But I definitely don't want something that's just centered around only true crime or podcasts. Like definitely want it to be something that I could do every once in a while when I feel... um, like it, but I feel like the thing that'll set this series apart is that I want to really focus in on just Bay Area cold cases because I'm from the Bay Area and I just feel like it will, I mean, I don't want to say it'll build a community, but it kind of, it's where my roots are. And I think it'll be just a really interesting thing for me to get to know a little bit more about the, the things going on in this area, right? Or the things that have happened. Um, and even just from doing a quick little Google search of like cold cases in the Bay Area, I found like an insane amount that I did not know about and that were really, really interesting. So I'm super excited to get into the series. Um, so basically how it's going to work is, like I said, I'm going to do about one episode a month of uh, dedicated to one cold case. Um, so today we are kicking off theory series, which is going to be the name of it. Um, so we're kicking off the theory series with a really, really interesting episode. Um, we're going to start a bit light. Um, this is a cold case that was a cold case for almost 30 years and then actually got solved. Um, it's, I, I wouldn't say similar to the Golden State Killer case, but I mean, I guess similar in the sense of it was cold for such a long time and they finally caught the killer, um, which is something that I'm really like, I just find so fascinating. And it also like definitely holds out hope for those cold cases that never get, got, get solved or got solved. Um, yeah. So Let's just dive into it. I've been talking a lot because I'm very excited and I'm also like a little tipsy, but it's fine. Um, anyways, so uh, yeah, we're gonna get into it. <laughs> the case I found for today is uh, 
a case I found from a Netflix show called Cold Case Files. Listen, I've never watched really any series besides like SVU. I know there's like Forensic Files. I don't know if how old Cold Case Files is. I just know that I found it on Netflix. So please don't come for my neck if I'm like saying the wrong things. Thank you very much. Anyways, uh, Cold Case Files. I was watching it on Netflix last night actually. And um, I originally was working on a different case for today's episode, but I was just kind of like mindlessly doing my work and then uh, listening to Cold Case Files. And this episode literally jumped out at me because it was um, a case that took place in Pleasanton, California, which is super close to home for me. Um, It is where it's about 45 minutes from where I grew up, but it's also where my ex is from. And I spent like basically two years in Pleasanton, like visiting all the time. Um, so it just like jumped out at me and it was something that really interested me from the beginning. So I decided to kind of switch up my game and this is going to be our first case. So today we are going to be talking about the case of Tina fails. So on April 5th, 1984, 14 year old Tina took a shortcut home to avoid bullies, but she never ended up making it home. Her little brother who was around seven at the time recalls waiting for his sister at home for about an hour before he left to go look for her. As he was rounding the block on his bicycle, he suddenly sees an undercover police car arrive at his house, and that is when him and his family discovered the news that Tina had been murdered. At the scene of the crime, there were no weapons, no fingerprints, and no footprints found, Um, but the officers did notice a purse in a tree nearby, and when they looked into the purse, they found Tina's report card, which um, all the detectives found kind of weird. Um, when they did find Tina's body, they found that she had suffered about 44 stab wounds and her body was found in a drainage ditch, um, adjacent to highway I-680, which is about east of where her high school was. And, um, basically where her body was found was near a place that was known as like a, a shortcut for a lot of the kids in the area. When, uh, the coroner did get a chance to check out the wounds they realized that her um, lacerations were up to five inches deep and the coroner also noticed that there was about there was probably no guard on the knife because uh, there were no indentations on the body so like I guess in typical stab victims you can see an indentation of where the guard for the knife is and in Tina's body there was none of that so um, then detectives did theorize that the suspect in the case probably had cut their own hand um, while stabbing Tina because that there was no guard. Um, They had to have basically wounded themselves as well, which gave them kind of a lead as to what to look for in the suspects that they were going to be investigating within the next few days. So the day after Tina's body was found, detectives went to Foothill High School, which is where Tina had attended high school, and they basically interviewed like her classmates, and they also found out that a group of girls were bullying her and threatening to not just beat her up, but they also, um, literally the day, I think either the day that she was murdered or the day before she was murdered, they were seen throwing rocks at her and like threatening to stab her, um, which actually is the original reason why Tina went through the culvert the day that of her murder. So she took this shortcut instead of taking the bus home because on the bus she knew that the girls who were bullying her were going to kind of beat her up there because they knew that's like where she usually the, – the method that she usually used to get home. So the day that she was murdered, she took the culvert um, in place of taking the bus, which, yeah. Um, 
So this culvert was a common shortcut between Foothill and most homes, but was similar to a swamp, as said by her Tina's uh, friend. She basically described the culvert as this like really creepy, sketchy tunnel that was like super dark and secluded. And as you go under it, like you can hear the overpass for I-8, I-680 above you. And you're pretty much isolated and alone. And her friend recalled that if you were to scream for help, no one would be able to hear you. So the day of Tina's murder, her bullies were in detention. Um, so detectives realized that it couldn't be them when they were investigating. Also, on that day before three, Steve Carlson, which is a student at Foothill High School, and Todd Smith, who is also a student, um, claimed that they had noticed Tina walking towards the culvert, and these were basically the last people to have seen her before she was murdered. Steve um, basically said that he saw a student named Jeff Michelson running through the culvert around 3.05, which is the time of the murder. So because of this, Jeff Michelson becomes one of the biggest suspects in the case. At the same time, the detectives are also investigating the family, and they learn that Tina's mom had recently broken up with a boyfriend, and his name was Keith Fitzwater, and she basically kicked him out of the house, and they broke up, um, and this guy seemed to be super problematic. Uh, the family and her son uh, remember that he was about 15 years younger than Tina's mom, and prior to Tina's murder, Keith got really violent in the home and he even got into a fight with Tina over, like, I guess him being super aggressive to her mom. So detectives now have two leads. They start to look into Jeff and find out that he's a bully around school. According to eyewitnesses on the day of Tina's murder, Jeff locked another student in a dumpster. Uh, Jeff had also been known for grabbing and groping girls around school. But what was most interesting to detectives was that Jeff was known for carrying a hunting knife around his belt. So detectives went to go talk to him and noticed that the, he had a cut on his finger. Uh, this was super significant because of the theory that the killer had cut himself while also stabbing uh, Tina. So when asked about the cut, Jeff gave two different versions of a reason why, which also made detectives super uh, questionable about him in general. So they got a search warrant and went through his house and then they found two hunting knives when, um, which they both, like they sent both of them to the lab. Unfortunately, they both came back clean and after that they basically like moved on to Keith. So detectives met with Keith and they learned that the day of the murder, he asked his boss for a ride to Shirley, which is Tina's mom's name. Um, so he asked his boss for a ride to Shirley's house and before going into the house, he asked his boss to hold his knife for some reason and I guess when the boss asked why Keith wanted to um or Keith said that he just didn't want to go into the house with a knife which the detectives again found very sketchy and so they got a warrant for the knife and it came back clean as well um so this became hard because their two leads were obviously kind of went cold so um they were continuing to do their investigation, and about three weeks after Tina's murder, a man named Walter Nymad, Nymad, I don't remember how to pronounce his name, whatever, Walter had uh, sexually assaulted a young woman in Felton, California, which isn't too far from Pleasanton, and the details of the crime were super similar to Tina's, so um, the investigators started to look into him, and they realized that at the team 
team. At the time of Tina's murder, uh, Walter was living in Pleasanton. So again, this is another really strong lead. They started to um, investigate more, and they found that Walter had a grandmother that lived in Pleasanton. So the detectives uh, questioned her, and she recalled remembering that on April 5th, Walter showed up at her house and when he showed up, she remembered that he was like super flustered and like really not himself. And he also told her that he wanted to get out of Pleasanton, which again makes Walter also a prime suspect in the case. The police then got a search warrant for his house and they found two bloody knives and bloody clothing. The items were obviously sent to the lab and then when they came back, uh, they unfortunately noticed that it determined to be animal blood. So again, the case kind of goes cold and uh, Shirley, the mom, she started to do kind of her own investigating. So she's like diligently looking at newspapers. She's really like searching into everything. And one day she was kind of casually like looking at a morning newspaper and she notices a man, Michael, um, who had been recently at the time arrested for killing a young girl in the same area around the same time as Tina. So Shirley realizes that the guy looks like super familiar and she finds, or she like goes through her photo books. Cause she was like, Oh, like I, I know I remember him from somewhere and ends up finding a photo of them at a barbecue. And so she turns in his name and who she thinks he is to the police and like how she thinks he's related. And, um, the, the investigators then go to Washington cause that's where Michael was. And, they investigate him, but then they realize that he's actually a different person than who she had thought he was. So again, another kind of cold lead. And at this point, the leads run out and the investigation is shut down. Um, the investigation goes cold and it goes cold for about 24 years. So in February of 2008, which is 24 years after Tina's murder, uh, Detective Dana Savage... Uh-huh. <laughs> ...takes up Tina's case... Um, the reason, she, the reason she took up Tina's case is because she was pregnant and um, as a detective, I guess, she wasn't able to work on any cases that were like ongoing because she couldn't do interviews. So she decided to kind of just like casually look into cold cases and she like stumbled upon Tina's and realized, I think in the thing she they said that there was about over like 2,000 things of evidence and like uh, notes and just like a bunch of information. And so she got like kind of caught into it and... Um, because again, we're in 2008, uh, there's a lot more of a, uh, just like a lot more knowledge around the case and like things that were happening in the area. And so Dana, um, realized that in the surrounding area during the same time that Tina was murdered, that, uh, there were several other serial killings happening in the area at the same time. Um, so she kind of starts to piece everything together and she realizes that in the eighties, there were three different serial killers that were identified as having killed young girls in Pleasanton area. One of them had, and she kind of realized like one of them had to be responsible for Tina's death. And so she starts to really deep dive into the murderers. As Dana's um, piecing together everything that has happened with the three different murderers, she realizes that in November of 1984, Michael Ide is uh, convicted of killing a girl in the area. And then in December of 1983, Robert Rhodes also killed a girl in the area. And then in 1989, James DeVeggio and his girlfriend, Michelle Matured, I don't know how the fuck to say her last name, doesn't matter. Uh, they kidnapped a girl off the street in Pleasanton. They also sexually assaulted her and then drove her to Tahoe where they strangled her and left her in the snow. 
Tina also seemed to fit their profile, which was young Caucasian girls in the Pleasanton area. So they became, um, DeVeggio specifically became the, again, lead suspect in this case. What surprised Dana was that DeVeggio went to Foothills High School and also during the time of Tina's murder, DeVeggio would disappear for days on end with no explanation as to where he was. Because he was from the area, he also would know the shortcut that Tina had taken. So Dana had uh, handed off to other detectives to interview DeVeggio. Uh, DeVeggio, uh, during the interviews, then levels with the investigators and says because he's in prison for life on other charges, he wouldn't lie about doing it or not doing it, but then claims to have known who did it and basically pointed fingers at this guy named Walter Nyman. Nyman, if you remember from the beginning, was originally on the suspect list, but the police could never confirm nor deny his um, involvement in the case. So they had let him go, obviously, like all those years ago. So uh, Dana then realized that DeVeggio and Nyman were friends. They were both from the same area and um, they just kind of started to piece things together. Dana also uh, goes back during this time to the scene of the crime and she's just kind of like looking around and she kind of remembers that the purse is in the tree and then proceeds to have an aha moment that the last person to touch this purse had to have been the suspect um, because it wouldn't make sense for anybody else to really throw the purse into the tree. And because we are so far and I guess not so far into the future, but because they were now in the 2000s and not in the 80s, they realized that technology obviously is a lot better now. So it uh, left room for DNA evidence and the purse in the original case had only been left um, for fingerprinting. Uh, But again, because technology is a lot more advanced, advanced at this time, she sent it in for further testing. Dana then gets a call back a few days later showing the FBI found about four drops of blood on the purse, which also confirmed the theory that the suspect had cut their hand during their killing spree. The suspect, drumroll please, turns out to be this guy, and his name is Steve Carlson. Like, out of fucking left field. Out of left field. If you remember, Steve Carlson was actually the kid who, one, was locked in the dumpster by the guy Jeff Michelson that was, like, groping girls and shit. He's still a creep. But, like, Steve was basically, like, the first witness in the case saying that he saw Jeff running to uh, the area that Tina was murdered in. And he was also, like, a kid who was bullied around school. So he was, like, basically somebody that nobody expected. It then started to make sense to detectives why he kind of pointed fingers at Jeff Michelson to kind of throw them off of his case. And then that's kind of when the puzzle pieces started to come together. Detectives then realized that Steve went to school. um, So they, they started to go back and kind of try to get more information. So at this time, Steve was incarcerated, the time that they were doing kind of their second round of investigations. So uh, they started to ask people around the area and friends, family, whatever. So they pieced together that Steve went to school the day of Tina's murder. And basically in the morning, he was like offering students to come over and drink and do drugs with him because his parents had left the house to him for the weekend. But because he was quote unquote unpopular, nobody wanted to come. And people kind of bullied him that day. And then later that day, he was locked in the dumpster. And when Steve got out, he was like covered in garbage and food and he was like super pissed off. And so he kind of rages and goes back to his house. 
He gets in his mom's car and he starts to drive around the neighborhood and he's, again, angry, pissed off, whatever. Originally, when detectives spoke with Steve, he said that he was with another student named Todd Smith. But later on, when Todd was questioned, he uh, said that he had never he was never with him. Todd was never with um, Steve that day. Steve also told detectives he saw Tina walking to the culvert. And because of this, detectives believe that Steve basically got upset. And because he was driving around pissed off, he kind of saw Tina and took advantage. You know, Um, he followed Tina into the creek where the crime then happened. So Dana theorizes that Steve left the purse in the tree as a marker to indicate where to either go back to or where to watch police as they worked on the scene. And when detectives uh, looked further into Steve's residence, they realized that he actually had a clear view of the culvert where it happened. And eyewitnesses said that they spotted Steve on his roof, watching everything as the detectives found the body. At this time, which was uh, in 2011, about 27 years later, Steve was, again, like I said, already incarcerated for several different things like drug charges and sexual assaults on young girls. And when detectives um, got warrant to go investigate Steve about Tina, he became violently ill. And in this, um, you guys should definitely go watch what I said, the Cold Case Files episode on it. I think it's episode three. Um, They show video of him, like, in the middle of talking and then becoming like violently ill. So then with further investigation in 2014, Steve was found guilty and is currently serving 15 years to life for the second degree murder of Tina fails. Unfortunately, the day before the trial, Tina's mom did pass away from a a massive heart attack. Um, was really like really sad when they were talking about it on the thing. Um, The family was like, she kind of like lost herself after the murder. And like even Tina's brother, who was younger, um, was said to have had to call uh, like, what was it? To call her in for like mental issues at the age of 18. And like he basically had to deal with a lot of the issues and turmoil on his own. And basically Tina's mom had taken a turn for the worse after her murder. And the family theorizes that her death was caused because she just couldn't go through with the trial and couldn't kind of deal with all the trauma and about a year after tina was murdered the family found a poem from the mom it's really sad but i'm gonna read it (laughs) so it says i had a dream it was a beautiful dream it was a fantasy came true tina came home we were all home again they laughed and cried and soon the teasing i missed began 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 oh my god i ruined that real quick anyways but soon tina had to leave Someday, we'll all be together again. I miss the family I had, and I wish at the time I knew how lucky I was. But the dream ended long ago, and her last words were, goodbye, mom. So I know for me, that was like a heavy case, and it was like a lot of information and a lot of twists and turns. But to me, that shit was real interesting. Um, But going further, going forward um, in this series, the whole idea of like the theory series. Oh my God, shut up. Ugh, sorry, I was rudely interrupted. Anyways, um, the whole idea of the theory series is going to be, I'm going to be doing, like I said, deep dives into the cases. And then um, because they are actually cold cases, I want to theorize on like what could have happened, suspects, um, what detectives think happened, stuff like that. So we're going to go into deeper into theories. But for today, I figured we would just kind of start off, like I said, on a little bit of a lighter note where it's something that was actually solved. Uh, gives us a little glimmer of hope in this sad shit. But... I really, 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 really enjoyed looking into it. 
Um, I always find these kinds of things really interesting. I love true crime. I really hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, I think I'm going to pretty much keep it here because there's not really much else to say about it. But like I said, this is going to be about a once a month segment. If you guys like it, I would love to hear feedback on it. If you don't like it, I would also love to hear feedback on it. Like I don't want to be doing stuff that nobody likes, obviously. So moral of the story. Let me know. Let me know if you like it or not. I hope you do. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you have any future cases that you have about like Bay Area cold cases, you can absolutely, you can absolutely send it to my email at idfkpodcasting at gmail.com. Um, please go ahead and follow me on Instagram. You can follow me personally at Kappa Christina, K-A-P-P-A-K-R-I-S-T-I-N-A, or follow the podcast, which is more preferable. Uh, that is going to be at IDFK Podcast. That's it. Um, <laughs> go rate us five stars on iTunes. I always say us. I say us like there's multiple people. It's just me. It's just It's just me. It's just me. Please, please. For the love of God, just go rate me five stars on iTunes. Um, I have nothing else to say. I hope you guys have a fantastic rest of your week. And I will see you next Wednesday. Okay, bye.